Chapter 2 of Guy Fawkes, or A Complete History of the Gunpowder Treason, A.D. 1605. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Guy Fawkes, or A Complete History of the Gunpowder Treason, A.D. 1605, by Thomas Ladbury. Chapter 2. Sketches of the Conspirators. The persons actually engaged in this atrocious deed were few in number, at the outset indeed very few, but the design was gradually revealed to others, though even when the discovery actually took place the number was comparatively small. That there was a general belief among the Romanist body that some great and effective blow would be struck is a fact which I need not attempt to prove, since it is so well known that no doubt can be entertained on the subject. But how the design was to be carried into effect was a secret to the great body of the Roman Catholics. The conspirators were thirteen in number. Their names are as follows. Robert Catesby, Robert Winter, Thomas Percy, Thomas Winter, John Wright, Christopher Wright, Everard Digby Knight, Ambrose Rookwood, Francis Tresham, John Grant, Robert Keyes, Guy Fox, and Bates, the servant of Catesby. Of this number, five only were engaged in the plot at its commencement, the rest being associated with them during its progress. Several of them took no active part in the mine. They were, however, in the secret, and furnished the money necessary to carry on the work. Three Jesuits, as will appear in the narrative, were also privy to the design, and counseled and encouraged the conspirators. They were Garnet, Gerard, and Tesman, alias Greenway, I shall endeavor to place before the reader such particulars as I have been able to collect respecting all these individuals before I enter upon the narrative of the plot. Robert Catesby Catesby was the contriver of the conspiracy. Footnote. In his youth, he was entirely devoted to dissipation, but in 1598, his zeal for the Church of Rome was suddenly revived. He was a native of Leicestershire, a man of family and property, and of such persuasive eloquence that he induced several of the conspirators to comply who otherwise in all probability would not have been implicated in the treason. Some of them admitted that it was not so much their conviction of the justice of the cause that led them to engage in the business as the wily eloquence of Catesby. He was descended from the celebrated minister of Richard III. Little, however, is known of him beyond the part which he acted in the gunpowder treason. It is evident that he was a man of considerable abilities, but being a bigot to the principles of the Church of Rome, he was a fit instrument for the execution of any plot, however horrible. Whether he was influenced by the Jesuits, or whether prompted to undertake the deed by his own feelings on the subject of popery, is a question of no easy solution, since, in consequence of his death, when the rest of his companions were taken, no confession was given to the world, which would probably have been the case if he had been brought to trial with other conspirators. He was the only layman with whom the Jesuit Garnet would confer on the subject of the plot. Thomas Percy. This gentleman was nearly allied to the Earl of Northumberland, by whom he was elevated to the post of Captain of the Gentlemen Pensioners. He appears to have been a man of great violence and temper, and his conduct proves him to have been a staunch bigot to popery. Catesby on some occasions found it necessary to restrain his violence, lest his indiscretion should mar the whole contrivance. On one occasion he offered to rush into the presence chamber and kill the king. He was killed with Catesby at Hallbeach shortly after the discovery of the treason. Thomas Winter. It appears that Winter had contemplated a departure from England altogether when Catesby, who had entered upon the plot, requested him to quit the country, 
whither he had retired, till an opportunity should offer of going to the continent, and to come with all speed to London. The scheme was proposed to Winter, who evinced no indisposition to enter into the plot. On the contrary, he appears to have complied with the utmost readiness with all of Catesby's plans. Soon after this interview he went over to the continent to reveal the design to some influential papists, with a view to ascertaining their opinions on the subject. Winter appeared at his execution to be penitent, but no hesitation was manifested by him at the first, nor does he appear to have entertained any scruples during the progress of the conspiracy. In many respects, he appears to have been an amiable man, but such principles as are inculcated by the Church of Rome are calculated to quench all those feelings of kindliness which naturally exist in the human heart. The breast of Thomas Winter was steeled by his principles against the kindlier emotions of our common nature. It is related of him that he dreamt, not long before the discovery of the treason, that he saw steeples and churches stand awry, and within those churches strange and unknown faces. When he was taken in Staffordshire, an explosion of gunpowder took place, and some of the conspirators were scorched, and otherwise injured. At this time, his dream was recalled to his remembrance, and he fancied that there was a resemblance between the faces of the persons he had seen in his dream and those of his own companions. The recollection of the dream appears to have made a strong impression on him at the period when he was taken into custody. Robert Winter. This gentleman was the brother of the preceding, by whom he was drawn into the conspiracy. Robert Winter was added to their number some time after the mine had been commenced. The circumstance caused some distress to Thomas Winter, who petitioned the court at his trial that, as he had been the cause of his brother's ruin, his death might be considered as a sufficient atonement to the law for both. Winter was taken in Staffordshire, where he retreated after the discovery of the plot. For some time, he was concealed in a house whose occupant was a Roman Catholic. The circumstance that led to his discovery was somewhat singular. The cook was surprised at the number of dishes, which were daily taken to his master's room. He, therefore, to satisfy his curiosity, peeped through the keyhole, when he saw a person sitting with his master. He was alarmed, both on their account and on his own, but his fears for his own safety, being greater than his apprehensions for Winter and his master, he determined to make a discovery to one of his relations. This step was followed by their apprehension. Guido, or Guy Fox. Fox was a soldier of fortune, who for some years was engaged in the Spanish service. Little is known of his early life except that he was a native of the county of York and received his education in the city of York. The writer of The Life of Bishop Morton informs us that the bishop and Fox were schoolfellows together in that city. His subsequent history to the period of the treason is but imperfectly known. He appears to have been a bold and daring adventurer, as well as a gloomy bigot to the worst principles of popery, and was, in consequence, deemed by Catesby to be a suitable instrument for his purpose. His proceedings in the mine, as well as on the continent, will be noticed in the prosecution of the narrative. John Wright John Wright was early engaged in the plot with Catesby. It was agreed between these two individuals, Catesby and Wright, that an oath should be administered to all who should engage in the conspiracy. The oath will be given in the narrative. John Wright was killed in the struggle with the sheriff in Staffordshire, where most of the conspirators were taken subsequent to the discovery of the plot. Christopher Wright. This person was the brother of the preceding, by whom he was induced to enter into the conspiracy. He appears, however, to have entered into the business with as much zeal as any of the rest. 
He was the first to discover the apprehension of Fox on the morning of the 5th of November. His advice was that each conspirator should betake himself to flight in a different direction from any of his companions. Had this advice been followed, several of them would probably have succeeded in making their escape to the continent. The conspirators, however, adopted another course, which issued in their discomfiture in Staffordshire, where Christopher Wright was also killed. Thomas Bates. Bates was a servant, and the only one of the conspirators who did not move in the rank of a gentleman. When the plot was concocting, he was servant to Catesby, the leader in the treason. Catesby observed that his actions were particularly noticed by his servant. The circumstances led him to suspect that Bates was in some measure acquainted with their designs, or, at all events, that he suspected that they had some grand scheme and agitation. In the presence, therefore, of Thomas Winter, Catesby asked him what he thought the business was, which was then in contemplation. Bates replied that he thought they were contriving some dangerous matter, though he knew not what the particulars were. He was again asked what he thought the business might be. He answered that he thought they intended some dangerous matter near the Parliament House, because he had been sent to take a lodging near that place. Bates was then induced to take an oath of secrecy when the particulars were made known to him. It was then stated that he must receive the sacrament as a pledge that he would not reveal the matter. With this view, he went to confession to Tesman the Jesuit, telling him, that he was to conceal a dangerous matter which had been revealed to him by his master and thomas winter and which he feared was unlawful he then disclosed the whole plot to the jesuit desiring his counsel in the business tesman charged him to keep the matter strictly secret adding that he was engaged in a good cause and that it was not sinful to conceal the plot bates then received absolution and the sacrament in company with catesby and winter such were the means used to draw Bates into the conspiracy. Francis Tresham Tresham was also engaged in the plot at an early period. He was not one of those with whom it originated, but it was revealed to him when the parties were in want of money to enable them to carry on their scheme. He offered to contribute £2,000 towards the grand object. He died in the tower before the trial of his companions. Ambrose Rookwood Rookwood was a man of fortune, and, until he became implicated in this plot, of reputation. He was not one of the original contrivers of the treason, but was drawn into it by strong affection for Catesby, who appears to have exercised over him a most extraordinary influence. John Grant Grant was a resident at Coventry, and, like Tresham and Rookwood, did not labor in the mine, but was made acquainted with the scheme after it had been concocted. Grant seized upon several horses on the morning of the 6th of November, supposing that the explosion had taken place with a view to the seizure of the princess elizabeth then on a visit in the neighborhood he was taken with the other conspirators in staffordshire robert keys little is known of this individual but according to his own account at his trial his circumstances had always been desperate as well as his character such a man was therefore ready for any enterprise however criminal fuller relates the following circumstance which I give in his own quaint language. A few days before the fatal blow should be given, Keyes, being in Tickmarsh in Northamptonshire, at his brother-in-law's house, Mr. Gilbert Pickering, a Protestant, he suddenly whipped out his sword, and in merriment made many offers therewith at the heads, necks, and sides of several gentlemen and ladies then in his company. It was then taken for a mere frolic, and so passed accordingly, but afterwards, when the treason was discovered, such as remembered his gestures, thought he practiced what he intended to do when the plot should take effect, 
that is, to hack and hew, kill and destroy all eminent persons of a different religion from himself. Sir Everard Digby. This gentleman was descended from an ancient family resident in Rutlandshire. His education was entirely directed by priests of the Church of Rome, his father dying when he was only eleven years of age. He was introduced to the court of Elizabeth at an early period of his life, and soon after the accession of King James he was knighted by his majesty. Sir Everard was made acquainted with the plot during its progress, when the early and original conspirators found themselves in want of money. He promised to furnish fifteen hundred pounds. He was taken after the discovery and was executed in London. Henry Garnet, three Jesuits, Garnet, Gerard, and Tesman, were implicated in this conspiracy. The two latter escaped to Rome. Garnet alone was taken and executed. It is remarked by Fuller, A treason without a Jesuit or one of Jesuited principles therein is like a dry wall without either lime or mortar. Gerard must be the cement, with the sacrament of secrecy to join them together. Garnet and Tesman, whelps of the same litter, commended and encouraged the design. Garnet received his early education in Winchester School when Bishop Bilden was warden. It is said that he was engaged in a conspiracy among the boys whose design was to cut off the right hand of their master. At this time, Garnet was at the head of the school. His conduct, in other respects, seems to have been so immoral that he was advised not to offer himself as a candidate for a scholarship at New College. He quitted Winchester for Rome, where he enrolled himself in the Society of the Jesuits. At length he was made the superior of his English brethren, in which character he returned into England to promote a rebellion against Queen Elizabeth. Other particulars respecting his subsequent career will appear in the narrative. Thus I have endeavored to give a brief sketch of the actors in this dark transaction. In reading the pages of history, we feel a natural desire to know something of the persons whose exploits are recorded. The particulars which I have given in this chapter are such as could not so well have been stated in the narrative. All other matters, however, relative to any of the preceding individuals, will be woven with the history on which I am now about to enter. Other individuals were taken and executed for treason in consequence of their joining in the conspiracy, but the parties mentioned in the preceding sketch were the only persons who were actually implicated in the plot by any decided acts. It is pretty evident, too, that very few persons, besides those actually engaged, were fully acquainted with the particulars of the plot. It was the policy of the conspirators to reveal the precise nature of the design to as few as possible, feeling assured that the smaller the number of actual traitors, the less was the risk of discovery. They were also aware that all, or at all events, most of the Roman Catholics would join them when the design was carried into execution. The Jesuits, who were privy to the plot, intimated to the great body of the Romanists that some great design was in agitation without specifying particulars. The actual plot, therefore, was confined to very few persons, but that a plot of some kind was going forward was believed by the great body of the Roman Catholic population throughout the country. End of chapter 2